morning. It is such a blessing to be here. We arrived here from the Middle East right before all the craziness, at least at the airport, started happening. So the Lord was with us. It was such a blessing to to arrive here in Dallas and uh, to be here with you this morning. In a world of uncertainty, let's focus on what is certain. Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have plagues. You will have sicknesses. You will have death. Jesus did not lie to us. He told us what we should expect. But then he said, take courage for I have overcome. I have conquered. I have been victorious over the world. Amen. Luke Ferry is a French philosopher at the University of Paris. And in 2011, he wrote an excellent book, not as good as the book I wrote, but it's still a good book. And I have it right here, so I'm promoting his book, but it's called A Brief History of Thought. It's a, it's a, it's kind of an introduction into philosophy, but he divides the history of thought of ideas into three stages. The first stage is Greek philosophy. The second stage is Christianity. And the third stage is secular humanism. Even though Ferry's an atheist, and he ends the book with a semi-tepid endorsement of secular humanism, he's clearly in awe of Christianity and its claims and its promises. He wishes Christianity was true. He literally says that. In fact, I'll give you the, you don't even have to read it. Here's the best quote in the book right here. Ferry says, if the promises made to me by Christ are genuine, And if divine providence takes me in hand as an individual, however humble, then my immortality will also in turn be personal, in which case death itself is finally overcome and not merely the fears it arouses in me. Therefore, I must renounce the wisdom of Buddhism as I renounce that of Stoicism with respect and esteem, but also with a sense of unbridgeable difference. I find the Christian proposition infinitely more tempting, except for the fact that I do not believe in it. But were it to be true, I would certainly be a taker. Isn't that great? I love that so much that I went and found Ferry's, Dr. Ferry's email, and I emailed him to tell him the glorious news that it is true. He never responded. Alas, he never responded to me, but God willing, may God open his eyes. Maybe he has. Ferry's intellectual ancestor the French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal, who also had a dramatic conversion to Christianity. He argued Christians should make good men and women wish Christianity was true and then prove to them that it is true. Ever since I read that a little over 10 years ago, that's been my maxim. That's been kind of my philosophy of of how I present the gospel. Make them wish it were true and then prove to them that it is true. Many Western intellectuals, like Ferry, who are rediscovering the treasure of Christianity long hidden in their culture, already wish it were true. Ferry's not alone. They are dreaming Christian dreams. They're looking for, they're longing for what they've lost, what they're missing. It's this nostalgia of Christianity and the Christian foundations of the West. They're not dreaming Hindu or Buddhist dreams. And especially not Mormon or Scientology dreams. They don't even dream those dreams. They're dreaming Christian dreams. You know, Nietzsche, the the, the atheist philosopher 
Friedrich Nietzsche said over a hundred years ago that God is dead. But yet, I keep finding today in 2020, as I listen to the greatest thinkers from all over the world, they can't stop talking about God. They can't stop talking about Christ, and they can't stop talking about Christianity. The sacred order keeps erupting into their consciousness, as it should. And it makes sense that this this would happen. Having cast off Christianity, over a thousand year heritage of Christianity, the West has lost meaning and purpose. They've lost forgiveness and redemption. And worst of all, they've lost hope. They walk around aimlessly without hope. Sadly, we've seen some of the horrifying results of this. I just think about some articles I've read just in the last month or so at the beginning of this year, how the suicide rate is skyrocketing among young people in the West, how there is this incredible confusion about gender and sex and identity, people not knowing who they are and thinking that they can magically just change into other things. Healthy children in the UK are getting sex change operations right now. And kids as young as 12, this may surprise you, but it's a fact. Kids as young as 12 and even healthy adults are having themselves euthanized, choosing to euthanize themselves, and it is legal right now in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and in Germany. As Chesterton said, the great British journalist, going backwards, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And that's exactly what we're finding for at least the West who've been losing their Christian heritage. Uh, Another British intellectual, Douglas Murray, I think diagnoses the crisis of meaning in the West better than anyone that I've read or that I've listened to. He likens modern Western man to Icarus fallen. Everybody remember Icarus from your high school, the discussion from your high school learning about Greek mythology? Icarus was given wings of feathers and wax by his father to escape this labyrinth that was ruled over by this beast named Minos. And this was on the island of Crete. Of course, this is this is legend. This isn't real. It's not history. His father warned his son not to fly too close to the sun. But Icarus, being the good teenager he was, ignored his father and he flew too close to the sun. His wings burned off. He plunged into the sea and he drowned. Murray argues, like Icarus, Western man has abandoned the teachings and warnings of his father, Christianity, his Judeo-Christian heritage. He's flown to the sun, pursued all these false ideologies and idols, Nazism, fascism, communism, scientific progress, and today, the more popular, secular humanism, as Ferry tepidly endorses, And he's fallen. Icarus has fallen. But in this reimagination, although Icarus is bruised and beaten and his wings are burned off, he's still alive. Modern man is still alive. So what's Icarus to do now? What is Icarus going to do now? Hence the crisis of meaning. And Murray says this in his book. Whatever else they lacked... Down is what I need to go down. Whatever else they lacked, the grand narratives, and he's here in the context, he's talking about Christianity. The grand narratives of the past at least gave life meaning. The question of what exactly we are meant to do now, other than get rich where we can and have whatever fun is on offer, was going to have to be answered by something. 
Murray doesn't know what that something is because Murray himself is an atheist. But he does, when you read him and listen to him, he longs, he wishes Christianity was true. But followers of Jesus do know what that something is. We have the answer for Icarus. We have the answer for the West. We have the answer for the whole world. And that something is Christ and him crucified and risen again. What we just sang about. Only he can give us that abundant life. I have come to give them life and life to the maximum, to the full. Only he can infuse every moment of our lives with meaning and fulfillment. Only Christ's shed blood can offer us infinite forgiveness and redemption. And only in Christ and his resurrection do we have hope. Even other religions don't truly offer hope. There's no hope in reincarnation, in Buddhism and Hinduism to be somebody else when you don't even remember who you were in the previous thousand lives. There's no hope in that. Only in Christ do we have true hope as fairy testifies. Friedrich Nietzsche also said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Why saying, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So many today do not have a why. Just look at how most react throughout the world to the coronavirus. Just look at uh, people at Walmart and Costco. These people do not have a why. Christians may not have the cure for the virus, but we do have a cure for fear, for anxiety, for hopelessness and despair. And that cure is Christ. He is our why. And with him, we can bear any how. Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, I am. So many around you are looking for meaning, forgiveness, and hope. This isn't, these aren't just Christian words. <laughs> every human being made in the image of God longs for these things. Every single one of them. And we have Christ to offer them. We have the answers. They're looking for a story to believe. So many of their stories have proven to be lies and false and utopian, false utopian dreams. But we have the greatest story ever told. And it's a true story. Many already wish it were true, so let's prove to them that it is true. As Paul said to the philosophers of Athens in Acts 17, God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through the man he has appointed, having furnished proof of this to all men, to all human beings, by raising him from the dead. According to Paul, the proof that God gave to the world that Jesus is the Son of God is the resurrection. This is the proof he has given. So let's look at that proof. You want to look at some of that proof? If I was going to begin with Icarus, if I was going to find Icarus lying on the ground, still alive, but beaten and bruised and his wings burned off, and I was able to share the gospel with Icarus, I would begin with the earliest evidence, the earliest source of Christianity. And that is from 1 Corinthians 15. And I encourage you to, even though I have it up on the screen, if you can turn there, I just want you to look at it in your Bibles, if you can, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to actually start in verse 1, so you get the context, but here Paul is quoting a creed, the most ancient, not just creed, but anything, any testimony we have about Christianity. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, 
Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, Paul received what he's about to quote. He received it at some point before he wrote this, obviously, but also before he planted the church in Corinth, because he then says, is what I delivered to you. He delivered this information to them when he planted the church in Corinth, which was around 50 AD. And this is what he delivered to them. This is the creed. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter. It says kephos. Kephos is the Aramaic word for Peter. It's the Aramaic. Peter's the Greek. So you have both mean rock. He appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred probably brothers and sisters at one time. Most of whom, Paul adds, Paul probably adds this to the creed. Hey, some of them are still alive. <laughs> They're still alive. You can go talk to them. But the most, the rest, uh, others of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. This is Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, Paul says, as to one abnormally born. He was the last As I said, what you just heard is the most ancient testimony we have from the earliest followers of Jesus. According to all scholars, whether they're Jewish, whether they're atheist, agnostic, liberal, conservative, all scholars agree that that was formulated within at most five years or so from Jesus's death. Peter, James, the twelve, Paul, and many more were proclaiming and teaching these great truths From Jerusalem, beginning there in Jerusalem, but going out as they went out to plant churches, just as Paul planted this church in Corinth. He he did it probably at Thessalonica. He did it uh, when he went to Athens. He he proclaimed this everywhere he went to tell them what the bedrock of their faith was. It was probably like an early, early catechesis for new converts to memorize and be grounded in their faith so that nothing could move them later. And notice in, in this, we have the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and the proof of it is right here in this earliest creed. If, if nothing else had survived, we, we've been given an embarrassment of riches in the New Testament. But even if we only had these five verses in 1 Corinthians 15, if that creed, imagine if that's our Bible, our Bibles or our New Testament is just this one page. It'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? Read your Bible. Okay, I already read it like a thousand times. But if, if even if that was all that we had, we would still have the essence of Christianity. We would still have the bedrock of our faith and all that we need for life and salvation in Jesus. And so look at what we learn about Jesus in this creed. First, Christ died and was buried. This refers, of course, to Jesus's crucifixion under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar and the burial the primary reason most most believe that the burial is mentioned right after, not only because it's a, it's a fact, but also because it proves that Jesus was dead. <laughs> Christ died and he was buried. Burial shows that the person is dead. You don't bury people that are alive. So Christ really died and he was then buried. And no teaching scholar in the Western world denies that Jesus was crucified. Everyone agrees that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. This is agreed upon like they agree that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC 
or that the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70. These are Archimedean points of history that cannot be denied. Therefore, we know that Christ hung on that cross and died. We know that. We know that like we know anything, unless we're living in the matrix. We know that that happened. We know that Christ hung on that cross and died. But did he die for our sins? Did he provide infinite forgiveness through that shed blood, through that blood that actually did drop from that cross and land on the ground that day in Jerusalem? As Paul said, did he love me and give himself up for me on that day? I think the next line gives us the answer. He was raised on the third day. And then, just like with the death, Paul then gives the proof. He died, proof, he was buried. He was raised, proof. Let me, let me, let me summon a group of witnesses. Let me summon individuals and groups that testify to seeing him. People that you can trust. Believers and even an unbeliever and an enemy, who is Paul himself, who hated Christianity, wanted to destroy it. This is actually the list of all the appearances in the New Testament that we have, basically from Paul, the Gospels, and Acts. So we have 12 distinct resurrection appearances of Jesus. There were probably more than this. We know Jesus appeared to people for a 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension. But we only get 12, only get, we get 12. Like I said, it's an embarrassment of riches. We get 12 distinct accounts of appearances of Jesus. We have four individuals, Mary Magdalene. He appeared to her alone. She was the first, by the way. She got the honor because she actually was brave enough and went to the cross and went to the tomb while the men were hiding and cowering. Peter, his chief disciple, James, his own brother, and Paul. These are the four individuals that are listed. And then we have eight groups of people. I won't list them all, but we have eight groups, but the 500, I mean, think about that. 500, Paul says more than 500 people saw him at once, probably in Galilee. An incredible, remarkable appearance that Paul says even some are still alive. You can go, you can go talk to him. Take your, take your trip not to Disneyland this year. Go to Jerusalem and talk to some of these, talk to some of these 500 who are still alive before they die. But notice this. Half of those appearances occur already in that early creed, the most ancient creed. So half of the resurrection appearances occur in the creed. That means that we only get six more in the four gospels and in Acts. We get half and we get three of the key individuals, Peter, James, and Paul, all in this early creed. Truly incredible. I like how this agnostic New Testament scholar puts it. She said this on this uh, searching for Jesus thing with P- Peter Jennings back in 2000. This is Dr. Paula Friedrichson. She says, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Yes, Dr. Friedrichsen, what did they see? What did they see? Whatever it was, it transformed their lives to the point of being willing to suffer and to die for what they saw. I believe those eyewitnesses whose throats are cut, they are the more trustworthy ones. We even have strong historical evidence that these three individuals, the exact three that we know 
like Paula Friedrichson said, all the historic evidence backs it up that they believe Jesus appeared to them. Those same three, Peter, his chief disciple, James, his brother, Paul, his enemy, all three of those we also know were martyred for their faith. We don't have strong evidence for the others. You, you hear sometimes, you know, all Jesus's 12 disciples were martyred for the faith. They might have been, but we don't have solid historical evidence for that. We do have solid historical evidence for those three, those same three. Whatever they saw, it was worth giving their lives for. The last undeniable proof I would give to good old Icarus is one that Paul couldn't even have known about. He definitely expected it to happen if Jesus had tarried, if Jesus didn't return immediately. But Paul couldn't have known because he died in the 60s AD. He couldn't have known what the Christian movement would end up doing in the world. He couldn't have known about the triumph of the Nazarenes, how this movement of Jesus would prove indestructible and it would go on to become as it is today still to this day the largest religion in the world the rise and world dominance of this Jesus movement whose ripple effects can still be seen all over the world paul i'm sure would have predicted it but he did not know this but we having 2000 years hindsight we can now use this with our icarus friends so what caused the rise of the nazarenes Probably what they were called before they were called Christians. What happened between Jesus' death and this explosive movement if Jesus stayed dead? (laughs) Because we have these two facts, these two undeniable facts. We have Jesus dying on the cross, he died, and then we have this explosive movement, movement that arose right where he died and was buried, saying that he rose again from the dead. So something happened in between that. You have to put something in between that to get that movement going. It's really difficult to start a movement when you're dead. Try it sometime. I dare you. And if you compare this to some other religions, like, for example, Islam. When Muhammad died, how many followers did he have? He had over 10,000. How many nations had his movement conquered? He had conquered many nations. When Jesus died on that cross, how many nations had Jesus conquered? Zero. How many followers did Jesus have when he hung on that cross? Uh, I think he had some Marys. I think he had some Mary Magdalene and his mother and some other women, maybe a few male disciples, but the rest were cowering in fear and realized this Messiah, this Jesus, he's a, he was a false Messiah. He was not the true Messiah because he died. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel, but he was not because he was crucified. And yet something happened that led to this explosion. The Big Bang had a banger. And the Christian movement also needs a cause for its singularity. What is that cause? If Jesus rose from the dead, if he is Lord of the world, then we would expect him and his movement not only to begin, but to still be to to be transforming nations throughout history and lives and beyond the fir- and, and do this beyond the first century apostles. Isn't that what we would expect? We wouldn't expect just Paul and Peter and Mary Magdalene to be transformed. If Jesus is alive, if he rose from the dead, we would expect him to continue doing this throughout the last 2,000 years. And this is exactly what we do find. Within about 300 years of the Roman Empire, it became Christian. It was turned upside down. The cross went from the place of execution to the foreheads of emperors. By the 4th century, the gods of Egypt and Greece and Rome, which had been worshipped for 
thousands of years were wiped off the face of the earth. And some of them are our favorites, like Thor. We love Thor. But no one worships Thor anymore. Isn't that sad? There's been no reformation for Zeus. No reformers, for, no Martin Luther for Zeus. Jesus essentially said to the gods of Greece and Rome, come out of her and never enter her again. I love how this one early church historian put it. He said the collapse of polytheism was in the end sudden, universal within the empire and practically absolute. Truly, the gods had lost and Christ had won. The Jesus movement also did not triumph over the Roman Empire and then die out later like other movements have done. There's been many movements throughout history that have done amazing things, conquered, and then they don't exist today. Genghis Khan's movement, for example. Neither did they always remain in the Middle East. Why didn't the Christians just all stay in the Middle East? Why aren't they just some small sect in the Middle East? Or, or why didn't they stay in Rome at the center of the Roman Empire? Like, for example, the Jains did in India. Or Hindus have always done in India. Hindus, Hinduism has been around at least 3,000 years, but they've remained in the 90th percentile in India. Why is that? If the gods of Hinduism are true, why haven't they reached out beyond the borders of India? Buddhists, too, have stayed in Southeast Asia in the 90th percentile. But the Christian movement is different. It continues to triumph, spreading throughout the nations into places in the world that the Caesars did not even know existed. It's truly the only world religion when you study it rightly. And even though Christianity has declined in England and America, which of course has led to those Christian dreams, as I was talking about, it is exploding in Africa, in Latin America, in South Korea, and in China. Let's consider China just for a moment. If you look at China's growth in Christianity in the last 100 years, it is truly remarkable. It's like the early church with the Roman Empire. There are an estimated, the last I looked, 116 million Christians in China. There are 90 million registered communists in China. And if you didn't know, China is a communist country. (laughs) There are more Christians than communists, at least professing communists in China. Communism fails yet again. If the growth of Christians remains the same in China, experts estimate that there will be 500 million Chinese Christians by 2050. If there are half a billion Chinese Christians in 50 years, that will change the course of human history. And then could we see a Chinese Constantine? And that Chinese Constantine would probably lead then to the wiping out of Shintoism and Confucianism and other religions that are there like the gods of Greece and Rome were wiped out early on we shall see we shall see but the face of christianity is very different than the face of any other religion because the face of christianity is just about every nation tongue and tribe on the planet praising christ in almost every language in fact right now because we are here on sunday morning sunday all over the world people are praising christ in just about every language spoken on planet earth And they are saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Finally, if Christ rose from the dead, if he is alive and Lord of the world, we would be expecting him not just to overwhelmingly influence nations, the world throughout, but we would also expect him to be transforming lives on the individual level, just as he did, as I said, with Mary Magdalene and James and the others. And again, that's exactly what we do find. For example, 
dreams and visions of Jesus, which are not the same as the resurrection appearances, but it's still Jesus supernaturally intervening in someone's life and appearing to them. This is happening to specifically, in the majority, Muslims and Hindus, and I've met and talked to some of them personally, across Africa and Asia. This is where the majority of these cases are happening. And there's many books that talk about this. And it's amazing because there's similarities, independent testimonies from people in different parts of the world, whether in Africa or in Asia. And they're having these very similar visions of Jesus that he's this uh, uh, emitting light. His face is like a like a face of light shining. And and he's and he's dressed in white. And he is usually quoting what he says in the Gospels, like I am the way and the truth and the life. Or something, something to that effect. An incredible phenomenon, which has led so many to come to Christ. But I think about this. I don't, I don't know if you think about this, but I think about this. Why don't Christians ever have dreams of Krishna or Buddha? Am I the only one that thinks about these things? Why don't Muslims ever have dreams of Krishna or Buddha? Or Joseph Smith? When has a Muslim ever had a dream and said, wow, Mormonism is true? It's never happened, by the way. Let me take you on a quick journey, and I promise it'll be quick, but a quick journey through the last 2,000 years of history from testimonies of people from all over the world encountering the risen Jesus, from the Apostle Paul in the first century to Martin Luther King Jr. in the 20th century. As we already saw, the first after Jesus' ascension to see the risen Jesus was an enemy of Christianity. It was Saul of Tarsus who had who tells us himself in the book of Galatians that he had determined to destroy this movement. I did everything I could to destroy this movement of Christianity. And on his way to do this, on the road to Damascus, he had this big surprise. Jesus appeared to him and he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I I, I can imagine that Paul, even at that point, did not think this was Jesus. He knew it was deity. He knew this was God. But it was probably this body of light that he saw right before he was blinded. And that's why he asks, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And then the voice to his utter shock, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's how he knew it was Jesus. And then Jesus says, now get up. (laughs) Now get up, Paul, and get to work. You have work to do. And he did that work well, didn't he? About 150 years after Paul, a woman named Perpetua, she's known throughout all the traditions of the church as Saint Perpetua, and some of her companions, Felicity and others. She was a 22-year-old woman who was condemned to death in the arena for being a Christian. This was in Carthage, which which is modern-day Tunisia. She's our first female martyr on record, and she's our first female writer in church history. And again, this is something all, unbe- I'm, I'm telling you stories that are not fiction and legend. These are all stories that even unbelievers would agree are historical and true. We have eyewitness account from her prison time and that when she wrote and the person that survived her after she was martyred wrote down her story. And she, she had this beautiful dream. You should read it online. It's not too long. You can just look up the, the, the account of Perpetua and Felicities. She had a beautiful dream where she climbed this ladder. This is a a painting of it. And a dragon was trying to attack her. And then Jesus spoke to her and said, Perpetua, I am waiting for you. 
but be careful that the dragon does not bite you. And she responded, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall not hurt me. And she and her companions were stabbed to death the next day in that arena in ancient Carthage. The Emperor Constantine, as we mentioned, we have, again, an eyewitness account of what he experienced because Eusebius, who was a church historian, wrote down the life of Constantine and he was his, his, his advisor. He tells us that Constantine had a vision. The night before he was going to do this battle, he had a vision of the cross. And Jesus said to him, by this you will conquer. By this you will conquer. And he put that sign of the cross on the shields of all his soldiers. First time it happened in history. And he won that battle and became sole emperor of the Roman Empire and ended persecution that very day of the Christians. And very soon after that, the Roman Empire became at least professing Christianity. 13th century Italy. I'm just giving you a sample. I'm just giving you a sample. I could give you many more. Francis of Assisi. He goes to church. He's having communion. And he hears this voice, which he says is the voice of Jesus, say, Francis, go and repair my house, which, as you see, is falling utterly into ruins. And he himself did a kind of a reformation to go back to imitating the life of Christ in the church hundreds of years before Martin Luther. 15th century France, a young girl, 13 year old, 13 year old girl named Joan of Arc that we know as Joan of Arc, illiterate, poor, peasant girl. She starts hearing voices that she says are from God and Christ and even angels. And they tell her to go to the king of France and tell him that she, Joan of Arc, is going to be the one to lead his armies to fight against the English and then France will be free forever from the English. And incredibly, the king agrees to this. And at 17 years old, 17, this young girl gets up on a horse and leads the, ba- the armies of the French after victory to victory to victory until they are free of the English. And guess what? They've been free to this day. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, just in 2016, celebrated Joan of Arc as the patron saint of France, as he should. But I want to know, how did she do that? How did she do that? Naturalistically, if there is no God, if what she was saying was a lie, if she is deluded, how did she do that? How did she lead armies at 17 years old to victory after victory? I'll let you be the judge. 17th century England, John Bunyan, the author of The Great Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most influential works of church history, claimed he heard a voice from heaven. It said, will thou leave thy sins and go to heaven or have thy sins and go to hell? And we know how he responded. He tells that story in Abounding Grace, where he tells his testimony. Another amazing story in Liberia, Africa, in West Africa. This is in the late 1800s. The son of a tribal chieftain named Samuel Kabu Morris. Christianity hasn't even reached to this area yet at this time. There was no Christians in his area. He had never heard of Christianity. And enemy raiders tied him to a tree. They conquered his village, killed his father. They tied him to a tree. His ropes fell off. And he heard a voice say, flee, Kabu, flee, Kabu. And he did, and he survived. And ultimately, he got to it. He found a church. He realized that voice was the voice of Jesus. 
he ended up getting on a ship to go, going to New York from Africa. He converted everybody on the ship. He made it to Taylor University in Indiana. And he wanted to study there to be a missionary to go back to Africa. But he died the next year. And they have still this uh, memorial here at, this is, this is uh, at Taylor University in Indiana. And scholars, missiologists say that what he did in his example and his just miraculous appearing from Africa in, in, in Taylor University, it led a wave of missionaries to Africa. And he's one of the central people that they point to as what has led Africa to be almost half. 50% of the continent is now Christian. He is one of those key people. A man named Sundar Singh from India. Hated Christians. Very much like the Apostle Paul. He threw rocks at them. He beat them. He persecuted them. He burned Bibles publicly. Jesus, he had a dramatic appearance from Jesus. Jesus appeared to him in a dream. And he said, why do you oppose me? I am your savior. I died on the cross for you. This is his own testimony. He became one of the greatest missionaries in India and in the Far East. Lastly, Martin Luther King needs no introduction here. But this you probably don't know about Martin Luther King Jr. Early on in his ministry for civil rights, he almost quit because of threats to his set to himself, but mainly to his family and to his children. He couldn't bear it. And the night that he was going to quit, he tells the story in his autobiography. He said that he prayed to the Lord. And he claimed that he heard the audible voice of Jesus as a result. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. <laughs> he was saying he literally heard the voice of Jesus. And this is what he said Jesus said to him. Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And this is how Martin Luther responded. This is what he wrote right after he said, this is what Jesus said to him. I tell you, I have seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roar. I've felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The world loves Martin Luther King. Muslims, atheists, everyone loves Martin Luther King. We need to tell them, where did he get his courage? Where did he get his inspiration? How was he ready to, to face anything? It was because of Jesus. By his own testimony, it was because he heard the voice of Jesus. Over 2,000 years, Every continent on this planet, you could give examples of people who have encountered the risen Christ. I have a question. Are all these people crazy? Are all of them crazy? That's my own son. They're not liars, are they? I mean, I mean, even unbelievers wouldn't say Martin Luther King's a liar. He's not a liar. He's not lying about this. But they have to say he was deluded. It was an, a, a pure delusion that Martin Luther King believed Jesus spoke to him and then went and did all the good that he did. Pure delusion. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. No, I don't think they're crazy. I think they really did hear the risen Jesus. And other religions, can they claim the same? Could, could someone from Hinduism or Buddhism, could they, could they do a list like this from people all over the world? Could Scientology, the Nickelback of religions, could they claim such? No, they couldn't. Only Christianity could make such a claim. 
This is just some of the proof I would share with the fallen Icarus. I would tell him, Christ is risen. Therefore, get up, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. This is what our lost world needs to hear. What your neighbor needs to hear. What you need to hear. The living Christ is still summoning us all. Follow me. Let me pray. God in heaven, we give you all the glory. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you that we could gather in the midst of all the uncertainty, in the midst of all the anxiety and the fears. We have the answer. We have the hope. We have the certainty in Christ and his death and his resurrection. And I pray that you would raise us up, raise up City, City Church of Garland and all the churches throughout this area and throughout the world to go and proclaim Jesus and him crucified. And like Martin Luther King, be ready to face anything because we know that we've heard from Jesus, that he has changed our life. And we thank you for the great hope that you've given us in the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.